From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. On edge for weeks, we speak with an evacuee from one of Colorado's fall fires. When you look at the fire map, the bottom edge of the fire is right on our houses. Then, Senator Cory Gardner said no to an in-depth interview before the election, so instead we'll review his record and policies. Later, what's it like to be the Poet Laureate of Aurora, a diverse community that's also confronting injustice? It's felt pretty paralyzing. I feel that I'm in a position of power, and I also feel powerless because as much as I'm in a position to say something, do something, I am also a Black person in America mourning not being welcomed in my own country, in my own home. The majority of CPR's membership base gives monthly. Thank you to our Evergreen members for making support for Colorado Public Radio an ongoing priority in your budget. Your monthly donation is CPR's most reliable source of revenue, and it's put to work each and every day directly serving communities across our great state. This has been a year filled with unexpected change. As a member, you ensure that free access to news, information, and music remains unchanged. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Ryan, the worst part of this is the emotional roller coaster. (laughs) And you think, panic, we have to pack. Okay, panic, we have to get off the mountain. Normally, Amanda Carrion lives in Drake, Colorado, in the mountains west of Loveland. A week ago, she fled for lower ground because of the Cameron Peak fire. I can see from our security cameras, you can see the fires, but you can't do anything. (laughs) All we can do is sit now and wait. Uh, The fire is far from out. She's staying with friends in Mead along I-25. She says she's still getting used to the highway noise. She keeps thinking it's wind, which freaks her out because of the fire. When you look at the fire map, the bottom edge of the fire is right on our houses. So we have amazing firefighters up there right now, and they have bulldozers. They even have a skidgen, which is a bulldozer with a huge water chute thing on it, and they have fire trucks. And they're trying to, as this fire comes down from the ridge, they're trying to keep it from burning up the houses. As we said, Carrion evacuated a week ago, but she'd been braced to evacuate for much longer. Remember, the Cameron Peak fire has been burning since August. And as it drew closer to her neck of the woods in September, she and her husband started taking an inventory of their worldly belongings. We walked through every room in our house and we made a list of everything in each room that was not replaceable. And then what we did is we took our cell phone And we went around the house and we literally took 985 pictures, opened every drawer, opened every cupboard, um, went out to my husband's shop and took photos of everything. So we have this massive file of photos. I put it on an external hard drive and put that in the safe. The pictures and the list helped them decide what to pack into a trailer, which they could hitch to their truck at any moment and flee. And we started living out of suitcases. We've been living out of suitcases since early September. Because we said if it ever moved to mandatory, we had to get out fast. They said if it moves to mandatory, you have to leave immediately. And so once we got mandatory, then we had other things laid out in the house for a very last minute, vehicle titles and birth certificates, social security cards, all that stuff, um, along with the good wine, because that can't be allowed to burn up. 
Okay. So, <laughs> so we're staying with some friends in Mead with our cats and dogs, which is awesome because we didn't want to have to put them in crates in a hotel. The animals. Amanda Carrion keeps thinking about the animals, the livestock her neighbors fled with. And the firefighters were great because they also helped, you know, round up chickens and goats and horses and get them off the mountain. But they're at the Larimer County Fairgrounds right now. And many of the displaced residents are out there volunteering to take care of the animals in the stalls. Carrion was worried there wasn't enough hay at the fairgrounds. She's been pleading with anyone who'll listen, donate hay. And they have. Chris Ashby directs the Larimer County Events Complex, a.k.a. The Ranch, where they are sheltering about 200 horses, llamas, and other large animals. Word went out that we could use some grass hay. And the community has responded absolutely overwhelmingly. We have lots of hay on site at the moment, and so much so that we're actually scheduling delivery pay now because we just don't have the storage space for all of it. So we don't want resources to go to waste, and we appreciate all the efforts people have, are going to to help us, but want to make sure it gets used well as it should be. I called Amanda Carrion back to let her know there was plenty of hay. She sounded relieved. A little bit of good news for someone who's had to escape her home for a second time. The last time was seven years ago. Maybe it's nerves or exhaustion or both, but remembering that last disaster kicked off a laughing spell. Um, during the flood. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, back in, was it 2013, 2012, 2013? My brain is scrambled. Yeah, so September, it was like September 12th around there, 2013, yes. Yeah, so, um Yep, that was the last one, the flood. Now we have fire, so, yeah. Some of the lives, human and non-human, affected by Colorado's autumn fires. For farmers and ranchers in the state, it was a tough summer. They're experiencing record-breaking fires, drought, and heat. It's been especially hard for food producers on the western slope, where conditions are as bad as it gets. CPR climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis spoke with ranchers near Steamboat Springs. To get a better look at the fire burning nearby, Matt and Christy Belton drive to the top of a dirt road on the ranch they manage. It's windy and smoke billows from a ridge of trees some miles away. For a moment, flames are visible. I mean, that thing's growing so fast. If that was up where our cattle were, who knows? Because it's pretty dangerous, it looks like. The Middle Fork Fire is burning in National Forest, where the Beltons would usually have cattle grazing. There was time to get their cows and their calves off the land, which has suffered with this summer's record heat and drought. We haven't had rain. The wind has been terrible, so the grass, there's nothing, really. It's like straw. So we decided to get rid of the calves early. The Beltons have been managing this land for 20 years, and Matt is a fourth-generation Route County rancher. He says things are different now. Well, it doesn't come back like it used to, you know, the grass and stuff. Like, the place that we just bought, we put a bunch of cows on it in the spring when we were done calving, before we could go to the forest allotment, and it didn't come back at all. Their hay production was also down by a third, With poor pasture grass and less hay, lots of ranchers are having to buy it to feed their cattle, so prices are up. Matt says he never sells his extra hay, although he gets calls all the time for it. Instead, he keeps it for years like this. Just off the dirt road, there's a stock pond with a few cows nearby. And it is the lowest, driest I've ever seen it. 
The Beltons are thankful to have options to move their cattle to different water sources. Some ranchers have to truck in water. Todd Hagenboo is an agricultural agent with Colorado State University Extension in Route County. He says the snowpack from last winter means the springs are doing okay for now. If we get a dry winter, then next summer we're going to have a different conversation because those creeks, they will suffer greatly. And now we're talking about having to look at cattle numbers, not from a pasture perspective, but from that water perspective. And that's a very different conversation. State climatologist Russ Schumacher says hopes aren't high for a big snowpack year. We're now in a La Nina pattern, which usually means drier conditions for the state. He says what has made this drought especially unusual is that it came about in the summer when the monsoon rains usually move in. You get pretty frequent thunderstorms and, and not maybe quite so hot because the clouds are there, but none of that happened this summer. Western Colorado is one of the places in the U.S. to have warmed the most with climate change. And since the area is already dry, Schumacher says that means there's less margin for error. When you have a, a monsoon season that doesn't turn out well, and it's two degrees hotter than anything that had been experienced previously, it really makes those conditions that much more impactful. Colorado's Agricultural Impact Task Force is looking at the economic effects of these dry conditions. State Agricultural Commissioner Kate Greenberg says usually they'd be meeting with ranchers and farmers directly. We'd be out putting legislators on a bus and going to the droughtiest places in the state to see what life is like on the ground. We're not doing that this year, obviously because of COVID, but we still want to be sure that folks are able to tell their story. So the state built a website for producers to share their drought experience, but there are only a handful of comments so far. One from a rancher in Mancus says he's been in the business for a decade and he's, quote, gotten whiplash from how extreme all of our weather events have become. Greenberg says a hot and dry year like this one is no longer abnormal. And the bottom line is we've got to really invest in resilience for our agricultural community, building resilience up and down the supply chain and making sure we are directing resources in a smart way to support farmers and ranchers in doing what they do best, which is adapting. Rancher Matt Belton agrees that ag producers might have to change the way they do things, but he's optimistic for what comes next. Every day that it's a drought, we're closer to rain or snow. <laughs> so I, it's not good, but it's a good learning experience for everybody in this business. And maybe next year will be different. Belton says that's all he can ask for. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Republican Senator Cory Gardner wants to keep his job. If he's able to, it'll make it harder for Democrats to flip control. Senator Gardner declined our request for an in-depth interview before the election. And so CPR's Michelle Fulcher joins us with a picture of the incumbent in this race. And hi, Michelle. Hi, Ryan. I'll say that Gardner's Democratic opponent, former Governor John Hickenlooper, joined us last week. You can hear that conversation at CPR.org. As for Senator Gardner, he's a former state lawmaker from rural Yuma on Colorado's northeastern plains. We know he served in the U.S. House before being elected to the Senate in 14. Tell us how he has positioned himself since then. Ryan, to put some context to this, I spoke with political scientist Seth Maskett at the University of Denver. His record in the Senate overall is one of a pretty mainstream conservative Republican. Ideologically, he's pretty much right at the middle of the Senate Republican Party. 
not really credited as being an extremist or an overwhelming moderate or anything like that. So when he's on the campaign trail, in ads, in debates, Senator Gardner talks about several legislative accomplishments. Just last weekend, President Trump signed Gardner's bill to create a national suicide hotline. That number, it's three digits, 988. Gardner also gets a lot of praise for a recent law called the Great American Outdoors Act. He has pointed to his work in getting the Bureau of Land Management to Grand Junction, uh, to getting the temporary headquarters of the Space Command to Colorado Springs. And through his work on the Foreign Relations Committee, he's developed some relationships in South Korea that helped get COVID tests to Colorado last spring. I've heard him talk about his work across the aisle a lot, Michelle, in his campaign. Right. So we often see joint statements, press releases, bills that he's co-sponsored with the Colorado delegation. Nationally, he's been rated by one group as the third most bipartisan senator. That rating is based on sponsorships and co-sponsorships of bills, not on votes. Really what it tells us is he's able to make relationships across the aisle. He's presumably open to hearing the other point of view. So that's sponsorships. When it comes to voting, it's a different picture. It's really one of the most interesting aspects of this race. So 538, which is the political site, says that he votes with Trump 89% of the time. That's in a state that's leaning Democratic and where Trump lost four years ago. Gardner was asked about that in the debate that CPR sponsored with Denver 7 and the Denver Post. Here's our colleague, Caitlin Kim. Well, Senator, really quickly, do you believe that 100 percent of Coloradans support 90 percent of President Trump's agenda? Look, I'm going to support Colorado. I'm going to vote with Colorado every single time. And I believe that's what I have done and that's what I will continue to do. You know, John Higgins. What's the thought on how that might play out with voters, Michelle? You know, experts are saying that even more than most presidential elections, this is really a national race that all of the attention is focused on a referendum about President Trump. So we'll see how that plays out here. Let's delve a bit into some of the issues in this race. Health care, perhaps the biggest. Where is Senator Gardner on the Affordable Care Act, uh, otherwise known as Obamacare? He's a reliable vote for efforts to repeal or replace. In 2017, he voted for three different bills that would have demolished the ACA. At the time, he said, and I'm quoting here, I've said all along that we would repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. That's exactly what we have to do. The Affordable Care Act has hurt Coloradans. Generally, I'll say that Republican replacement efforts have been on getting rid of the individual mandate and cutting back on some of the required benefits. The future of the ACA, of course, now before the U.S. Supreme Court, where the Trump administration backs a lawsuit to overturn the Affordable Care Act. What is Senator Gardner's position there? So far, he's really refused to state a position. Here's a conversation you had with him back in July. Let me start with a yes or no. Do you support the administration's request before the Supreme Court to dismantle that law? Just again, yes or no, do you support that request? Well, Ryan, uh, thanks for the question. What we have to recognize is both Democrats and Republicans yes or no. want to reverse the Affordable Quick Care Act. Uh, do, do you support Democrats the administration's request before the Supreme Court? The Affordable Care Act. Even John Hickenlooper wants to reverse the Affordable Care Act because he supports socialized medicine. So what we need to do is find Republicans and Democrats who are willing to work together 
to find a better solution than the Affordable Care Act. John Hickenlooper wants to build on the Affordable Care Act. Do you support the administration's brief before the Supreme Court to dismantle it? John Hickenlooper supports uh, socialized medicine and universal care. I'm asking care. if you support. Been reported by the, uh, the, the Associated Press. So uh, I don't think you can misinterpret John Hickenlooper's words when he clearly says, I support socialized medicine. I am very specifically. Position, he wants to end the Affordable Care Act. I am very specifically asking you if you support dismantling the Affordable Care Act right now, the request before the Supreme Court. Well, I agree with the Democrats that the Affordable Care Act is not working. But I do not support universal health care. So again, that was July. And then recently, Gardner voted for a Democratic bill that was looking to stop court action against the ACA. When our CPR colleague, Andrew Kenny went back to Gardner's staff and asked about that, they said, well, it was a tactical move to boost a bill that Gardner is sponsoring dealing with coverage of pre-existing conditions. Yeah, tell us more about that bill. It's been in the news a lot. Right. It was introduced in August. It's 117 words. Gardner has said it guarantees coverage for pre-existing conditions, and it guarantees that that coverage won't cost more if you have a pre-existing condition. That said, there's been a lot of skepticism from experts on this, from fact checkers. Again, our colleagues uh, delved into this. Experts say the bill is too short and it's too vague to ensure that insurance companies have to sell policies to people with pre-existing conditions. No surprise that Senator Gardner differs from his opponent here, Democrat John Hickenlooper, on what should happen with health care. Hickenlooper supports getting everybody covered through a combination of private insurance and a public option. Gardner says that takes the country right down the path to socialized medicine. Gardner has also hit Hickenlooper hard on, on the ethics issue. Yeah. Earlier this year, the state's Independent Ethics Commission said that Hickenlooper broke state laws twice, once by accepting a cross-country plane trip, in another case, some perks while he was traveling in Europe. And this is as he was governor. That's right. This whole issue is a favorite theme of Gardner's. Uh, You see it in his ads again. He brings it up all the time in debates. And he says the problem really goes far beyond what the Ethics Commission found. I mean, they did find Hickenlooper guilty of contempt for failing to attend a hearing about this. They did. Uh, What is Hickenlooper's counter? Hickenlooper says they were relatively minor violations. They were inadvertent. In an interview with you last week, he promised it wouldn't happen again. He does say that the charges were politically motivated, and he points out that he paid the fines that the commission imposed. We're focused on the race between former Governor John Hickenlooper and the incumbent Republican Senator Gardner. Uh, Cory Gardner did not agree to speak with us, but we are reviewing his record now with my colleague Michelle Fulcher. And Michelle, you alluded uh, at the beginning of this conversation to a bill that Senator Gardner sponsored. Uh, This is called the Great American Outdoors Act. Right, Ryan. This uh, drew strong bipartisan support. It's been called the most important conservation bill in maybe the last 50 years. I've heard the term holy grail used. Exactly, Uh by an official with the Nature Conservancy, which... Isn't presumably a Republican group, necessarily. Well, let's assume. (laughs) Uh, What are the nuts and bolts here? So permanent funding for the Land and Water Conservation Act, that's something that's been sought for years, and billions of dollars for maintenance of national parks, wildlife areas. You know, if you've been to some of those places recently, you've seen they're really 
needs some work. Now, there is another environmental bill kind of hanging out there. It's called the CORE Act. What's up with that? So that shorthand, CORE, it's the Colorado Outdoor Recreation and Economy Act. It would provide different kinds of protections for about 400,000 acres of land, public land in Colorado. And Hickenlooper says, hey, Gardner, if you've really got environmental chops, show us and vote for this thing. Gardner has said he won't block the bill, but he does point out that the congressman whose district includes most of that land opposes it. To energy development, because this is really another key point of disagreement between Hickenlooper and Gardner. Both Gardner and Hickenlooper agree that climate change is largely human-caused. Gardner describes what he calls an all-of-the-above energy strategy that would include traditional fossil fuels and wind and solar. Where does he part ways with Hickenlooper on this? So largely around fracking. Hickenlooper has said he wants to make it obsolete as the country moves more toward renewables. Gardner gets really passionate about that. He says that will level the fossil fuel industry in Colorado and cost about 230,000 jobs. Now, you might remember when Hickenlooper was governor, he actually drank a few sips of fracking fluid to try and prove that it was safe. So Gardner's latest line is, hey, Hickenlooper drank fracking fluid. Now he's drunk the Kool-Aid. Hickenlooper has also been questioned about whether he really wants this Senate job, because he told me once, and he said versions of this to other outlets, that he'd rather be an executive than one of a hundred senators. Right. You know, Gardner, meanwhile, wields influence on a number of important committees. Which ones? So he's on commerce, he's on energy and natural resources, and he's on the Foreign Relations Committee. And he's really made a mark there, uh, calling out China on human rights abuses, calling for much tougher sanctions on North Korea. And as I mentioned earlier, he's got some relationships with South Korea that have helped get COVID equipment here. Test kits, I think, in particular from South Korea. Right. Michelle, thank you so much for this overview. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's Michelle P. Fulcher with a picture of U.S. Senator Cory Gardner, who's up for re-election. Gardner declined our invitation for an interview, and his campaign didn't fill out our online voter guide. But we've listed many of the stances he's taken on the record at CPR.org. That's where you can also listen to my interview with his opponent, Democrat Sean Hickenlooper. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a poet who recently has been at a loss for words. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Marijuana has long found its way into the hands and minds of creative people. Smoking definitely brings the emotional intensity where you don't overthink it. But what is the connection between creativity and cannabis? Most people who smoke pot get less creative. To find out, we talked to members of the band's Chicano Batman, Tank and the Bangas, a chef, and a neurologist on the latest episode of On Something. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What's it like to be the poet laureate of Aurora right now, a city under the microscope after the death of Elijah McClain in police custody? There have been protests, multiple investigations are underway. Asetu Shango is navigating all that. They're only the second person to serve as the city's bard. They indeed use the pronoun they. And Asetu, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Thank you for having me, Ryan. How does it feel to be 
poet laureate of a city that's been in the international spotlight for pretty painful reasons. Yeah, it's very difficult, um, especially with my social identities, being a Black person in America, um, with that added weight, it's felt pretty paralyzing, honestly. I feel that I'm in a position of power and I also feel powerless. Um, I want to do something, but I have no idea what to do that hasn't already been done by celebrities throughout the nation. So it's a huge burden on my heart. And I went to a tarot card reading because that's something I do. Yeah. And I told her about this. You know, I was like, I have this power and I should be doing something. And I don't know what I should do. And she just kind of looked at me and she's like, I think this is impacting you more than you're giving yourself credit for. And I just started bawling because as much as I'm in a position to say something, do something, I am also a black person in America mourning, um, not being welcomed in my own country, in my own home. And, and does it feel like your story to tell? I wonder if you grapple even yeah. with, with that. No, it definitely feels like mine. I feel like as a member of the Black community, um, this is this is a very old story in this country. This is one of the oldest stories in this country. And yeah, Elijah McClain very much feels like a sibling of mine, especially living so close to where he lived. Mm. So yeah, it, I feel a huge kinship to that story and many of the others that have come out in the past year, several years, several decades, etc. It sounds like grief. Yes. Recently on your website, I said to you, you wrote this, because I have gotten to know my shadow so deeply, I see the shadow of the world. Mm-hmm. I would love to have you unpack that for us. So that goes along with this moniker I have attached to myself, which is the dark goddess poet. It's grappling with my social identities, being black, being woman, being genderqueer, being polyamorous, being pansexual. I find myself being a mirror to all of the parts of this country, of this culture that it wants to deny within itself. Um, You know, we live in a society that has a lot of racism, that has a lot of transphobia, that has a lot of these things. And so I find myself holding up a mirror to the society and being like, hey, the fact that I am genderqueer and use they, them pronouns, it's not wild or absurd. Because if you were to spend any time with your own gender and your relationship to your own gender, you would find that there are inconsistencies, that you don't always feel like this cisgender man or woman, that there are some times when you don't want to wear makeup or when you would like to wear a dress or something like that, right? And so instead of being this person that people say, oh, well, they are just so weird and all of this stuff. I'm like, no, you know, this is me living my authentic self. What does it mean for you to fully lean into your authentic self? So that's a part of it. Another part of it is the healing process. So my website is centered around the work that I do for Black Femmes, which is healing work. The term you're using is Black Femmes. Yes. Help us understand what that means. 
So black is obvious. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm just checking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then fins. Yeah. So that is a very specific word. I use it very specifically. Um, it's one of those words that evolves very quickly and a lot of people might carry different definitions of it. So my definition of it is anyone who is targeted by sexism, which is targeting femmes and um, people who are, are feminine people, people who were conditioned as women, and cissexism, which is targeting anyone who doesn't identify as cisgender. So those are the people that I serve, that intersectionality of being Black, of being woman, and or being off the gender binary. And you're very um, interested in, in the mental health of people who are Black and femme. Yes, that is where my focus is, just because that is the medicine that I bring. So when I talk about knowing my shadow, what I'm talking about is spending years in my journal discovering myself and discovering my unhealed parts and integrating those parts, not to mention working in treatment facilitation for children with neglect and abuse or homeless shelters for youth. So I've, you know, experienced that shadow of the world. And I understand that human beings, we don't really evolve much past our child self. We just get really good at covering it up. So learning how to work with children who are coming from neglect and abuse also means that I learn how to nurture my clients who are covering up their child parts that are unhealed. Do you think that by coming to terms with your own identity, you are also saying, hey, America, I'd like you to come to terms with this too. I want you to see yourself in this. So that's an accident. I don't, that's not necessarily what I wanted. That's what I do. And so I'm kind of just leaning into it because when I walk down the street, you know, with my makeup on and my height and my just obvious otherness, I'm getting those reactions anyway. I'm, I'm triggering those things in people anyway. I don't wear shoes. This is such a simple thing that really, really genuinely upsets people. And I have figured over the years that the reason it upsets them is because here is this instance in which I am not following the norms in which they thought were completely irrevocable. Like you can't change this idea. And here I am walking around with no shoes and it just totally messes up their worldview. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned going barefoot because as I watched a lot of your poetry performances, I noticed that you were barefoot. You're saying that you take that beyond the stage. I There are very few places that I will put on shoes. What if, what if it's snowing? I can't think of one. If, I, if my feet are cold, I will put on shoes. I'm not putting on shoes for anybody else's benefit. Well, I feel yeah. like I'm really hungry for a poem. So why don't we have you perform Define? Define. Lady. As in, act like a lady. As in, a lady in the streets, but a freak in the sheets, be quiet. Don't talk so much, you think too much, you feel too much, compartmentalize. Pour love and nurture out, keep sickness and pain in. Don't talk about the OBGYN or your period in public. That's inappropriate. Get to the feminine hygiene aisle. Everything that makes you woman is unclean. You are unclean. Have a light fragrance in your scent. Bounce past them effortlessly. Realize that you are walking pornography. Let them watch. 
Don't lead on that you let them watch. This is a delicate balance, but be compassionate. Learn how to take a joke or a compliment. After all, you probably would. Just as he says, look pretty on your back. Define goddess, as in Sekhmet, Et Eru, Bide, Ishtar, Kali. Bite his head off in bloody gore. This will liberate his soul from the body when his flesh has become too rooted in ego. Be compassionate, like the fire that sets full woods aflame just to fertilize the soil. Your breath is what carved the sand dunes of the Sahara. You are that big. Your purpose that large. Your mouth that wide. Be loud. Tell him that you were not deceived by some snake. You are the snake. The crow, the vulture, the harbinger of death bring a maternal fury just as dark and chaotic as the womb that birthed them. Lady and goddess are not synonyms. Women were not put on this earth just to please you. Do not call me queen as if it will seduce me into your submission. It will not. It will conjure the demon inside of me. Define devil, find root word, Devi, origin, Sanskrit, gender, feminine meaning the shining one, meaning your reflection, meaning you hate yourself then throw epithets at me. If you do not picture a goddess with a machete, then you better read up on your Oya. And if you think just because I'm spiritual, it's gonna be all ohms and namaste. Well, I suggest you skip the westernized yoga class and read a goddamn book, Kali. The divine mother shows herself in over 10 forms from the peaceful lotus dwelling Kamala to the decapitated China master pouring her own blood down her throat, making everyone uncomfortable. I am a tower of your discomfort. Only because I do not fit your definitions define woman, lady, goddess, woman defines themselves. I'd like to describe for our audience what it was to watch you perform that, because you're on video chat with me right now. You did that from memory, and you did it with your eyes closed. Does having your eyes closed help you remember? Um, so I normally would be performing that to an audience, so I would be making eye contact with them. Oh, you would? Okay. Very uncomfortable if I could. Um, but because I know that this is only going to be audio... Um, it's kind of a fun experiment to play with really tuning into my voice and that being my only mode of performance because normally I'm using my body to also express the words. Um, so it was kind of a fun thing to close my eyes and focus on the intonations alone. I take away from that poem uh, that a woman is a person unto herself without a man, and a person is a person unto themselves without a mate. Uh, what do you What do you think? Um, a little narrow. I think it's it's more than mate. It's more than partner. I wrote that at a time where I felt, and this is something that I still feel is happening um, in terms of sexism. There's this constant need for women, for female presenting people to be defined by the men in their lives. Mm -hmm. So even when we hear, you know, these cries for equality, it's like, hey, that's somebody's daughter, sister, wife. It's like, no, 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 that's a human being all into themselves. And so for me, it's more about this constant definition, right? Like I'm not only defined 
by a mate. I'm defined by what the guy on the street has to say about me. Like I literally had a guy call me queen and because I didn't respond to him, turn around and then call me the B word, right? And so, and then it's so obvious how closely those words have become. And that's why I'm writing this poem because it's like, oh no, I see you. I see that this is just another way that sexism is playing. You know, you call me queen, but historically speaking, a queen is somebody who would cut off your head and sleep with your brother. So like, what do you really <laughs> mean here? Like, let's be clear, <laughs> you know? So that's kind of the idea. I also appreciate the openness about menstruation because I, I think that it's something that is not talked about enough and often squirreled away. You know, it's the symbol of it is in my purse and I walk away and I deal with it in private. And right. do, do you want to say just a few more words about including... Uh, the idea of a period yeah, in, in that poem? I mean, it's so interesting, right? Because I feel like how I respond to things such as sexism and racism is I create my community where the things that, you know, the, the parts of me that I am are normalized. I create a community that it, my pronouns are normal. My queerness is normal. Talking about menstruation is normal. So I kind of have my pocket of society where that is okay. But yes, it's a huge issue in that people who are menstruating are often having to find a way to make sure no one knows. And it's often painful. It's extremely messy. My partner had no idea that I was like, yeah, I wear black so that I can just bleed through my pants and nobody will notice. <laughs> like This is happening. And then half of the world is experiencing this and half of the world is having to hide it so that uh, the other half of the world isn't uncomfortable with it. And it's way problematic. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, I have the pleasure of speaking once again, checking back in with Asetu Jango, who is the Poet Laureate of Aurora. In 2016, you changed your name to Asetu and that is also the year you wrote the poem, Give Your Daughters Difficult Names. I, I'd love to have you perform that for us, and then let's talk about it. Give your daughters difficult names. Names that command the full use of the tongue. My name makes you want to tell me the truth. My name does not allow me to trust anyone who cannot pronounce it right. Many of my role models contemporaries, but especially ancestors, have a name that brings the tongue to worship. Names that feel like ritual in your mouth. I don't want a name said without pause, muttered, without intention. I am through with names that leave me unmoved. Names that leave the speaker's mouth unscathed. I want a name like fire, like rebellion, like my hand gripping Mass's whip. Now I want a name from before the ships, a name Officer Wilson might choke on. I want a name that catches you in the throat if you say it wrong and if you're afraid to say it wrong, then I guess you should be. I want a name only the brave can say, a name that only fits right in the mouth of those who love me right because only the brave 
can love me right. I'll say to Shango is the name you take when you are tired of bearing your jewels under thick layers of soot and self-doubt. I'll say to the light Shango, the pickaxe so that people must mind your soul just to get your attention. If you have to ask why I changed my name, it is already too far beyond your comprehension. Call me callous, but with a name like Shango, I cannot afford to tread lightly. You go hard or you go home, and I am centuries and ships away from any semblance of a homeland. I'm a thieves poor bookkeeping skills away from any source of ancestry. I am blindly collecting the shattered pieces of a continent much larger than my comprehension. I hate explaining my name to people their eyes peering over my journal, looking for a history they can rewrite. Ask me what my name means. The f does your name mean, Becky? Not every word needs an English equivalent in order to have significance. I am done folding myself up to fit your stereotype, your black friend, your African queen meme, your desire to learn the rhetoric of solidarity without the practice. I am trying to build a country, a continent, a home. The body is a safeless place when you do not know its name. I'll say too is what it sounds like when you are trying to bend syllables into a home. Shaky shutters and when whistling through your empty, I feel empty, motherless. There is no safety in a body, no home in a name. A name is honestly just a name. Now that's not quite right. A name is honestly just a ritual. And mine still sounds like reverence. The image of the queen coming up again in that poem and uh, the line that just hit me in the solar plexus, a name from before the ships. You are not just a poet, you're also a coach and we've explored some of that dimension. Um, I know you're launching a program as well called Confronting Whiteness. And I'd love to just hear a few words about what you hope to achieve with it. Yeah. So confronting whiteness is the idea, right? It's not that white people are the cause of racism. It is the construct of whiteness and therefore the construct of blackness and brownness and all of the race as a construct itself, which is specifically for power for white people. And so in that process of constructing race for the purpose of power, there's also this shedding that we see particularly in the creation of the United States, the shedding of culture, the shedding of connection to humanity, this shedding of connection to heritage, all for the purpose of we're now white people and we come together to have this power over non-white people. And so that has trickled through our history. So I'm targeting whiteness as the issue, that shedding of all other heritage and culture and humanity connection to the body is also within that. Binaries is a big part of whiteness. So Confronting Whiteness is a program in which I am helping move a cohort of white people through confronting how whiteness has showed up, is showing up in their body, how they've been conditioned and deconstructing that. 
I, I think what I hear you saying is that the identity of whiteness has mm-hmm. robbed white people of a lot of their own beauty and difference. And I think I hear you say kindness and humanity. Yes. Yes. You can't categorize someone. You can't push someone into a box without segregating yourself, essentially. And so what needs to happen in order for all of these systemic oppressions to be addressed is for people with privileged identities, and that doesn't just include whiteness, but we're focused on whiteness for obvious reasons, that that be deconstructed and that the integration of all of your parts, that that take place. And so this was something I was very resistant to doing. I did, I had one client in March and George Floyd murder was publicized Mm. and I just shut it down. I literally took it off my website like two days later. And by doing race talks with Boulder Public Library, which I've been doing for the past couple of months, I'm just hearing a lot of white people like we really need this. And they're coming to me with this respect and listening to me and just knowing everything that's going on in the world. I can't turn my back on that as much as I would just love to like hang out with black fans and just like vibe. I I have to do this work. And so I'm, I'm structuring it now so that they can help each other more than me being like one-on-one with them, because I think that is where a lot of the emotional labor comes in that I just can't do, but making sure that my voice and my gifts are being used in this way. Thank you so much for being with us, Asetu. Yeah, my pleasure. Asetu Shango is the Poet Laureate of Aurora. We booped an asteroid. And that's how someone on Twitter described NASA's achievement Tuesday evening. The OSIRIS-REx spacecraft built in Littleton just collected samples from an asteroid. Listen to the reaction at Lockheed Martin serving as mission control as the whole thing went down 200 million miles away from Earth. OREX has descended below the five-meter mark. The hazard map is go for tag. Contact expected in 50 seconds. We're going in. We're going in. Touchdown declared. All right. Sampling is in progress. OSIRIS-REx maneuvered past large boulders on the asteroid Bennu, pulled into a small parking spot of sorts, and deployed a kind of space vacuum cleaner to collect a sample. The science lead on the mission, Olivia Billet, told Colorado Matters Monday why that carbon-rich dust is so intriguing. Bennu, as an asteroid, we believe holds some of the original materials of the solar system, and this organic material hopefully is the same material that seeded life on Earth. So if we can bring back a pristine sample from there, it can tell us a lot about how life started on Earth. Scientists will need a few days to figure out if they collected enough material from the asteroid, which will be determined, of course, from a distance. We'll do some sample imaging. We'll take pictures of it to take a look at how much we've collected. And then we'll do a sample mass measurement activity where we do a series of spins to estimate the mass of the material in there. If you think about it, We need 60 grams. On Earth, you just put that on a scale and you weigh it. But without Earth's gravity, we can't weigh something in space. So we have to do a series of other activities to estimate the mass instead. If necessary, the spacecraft can go back to the surface of Bennu two more times. 
It continues to orbit around the asteroid, which it's been doing for nearly two years, mapping the surprisingly rocky surface to find a suitable landing site. It was only on the surface for about 15 seconds to collect its samples. Next spring, OSIRIS-REx will start its journey back to Earth. The asteroid sample will be dropped into the Utah desert in a protective container with a parachute, of course. Target date for that, September of 2023. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Natasha Watts. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.